Today is International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church Worldwide. According to Voice of the Martyrs and Open Doors USA, in 2022, 5,621 Christians were martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ. That means 15 believers every single day are killed because of their faith in Jesus. Or another way to say it is that every 90 minutes, a Christian is killed because of his or her faith. From the time we started our worship service at 10.30 a.m. to the time we leave, maybe at noon, one Christian somewhere around the world will lose his or her faith, his or her life, because of his or her faith in Jesus. And not just 5,621 Christians were killed last year, but the destruction to buildings shows the persecution that occurs. 2,110 churches and religious buildings were destroyed in 2022. Approximately 360 million Christians around the world are suffering high levels of persecution where they live. If we look at persecution among Christians geographically, we see in Asia, two out of every five Christians are persecuted on the continent of Asia. Or if we go to Africa, one out of every five Christians is persecuted because of his or her faith. The missionary church denomination says this about those numbers. Darkness hates the light, and when the light of Jesus enters, the darkness not only resists, but fights to retain its territory. While numbers like that are difficult to hear, they should not surprise us. Jesus told his 12 disciples as he was preparing to leave them in John 15, he said to them in John 15, 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear witness. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. Jesus was describing the suffering and persecution that would come to those 12 disciples originally, and then to all believers around the world after that. And suffering and persecution for us sometimes, if we're honest, is a little surprising for us to learn about and hear about. It's foreign to some of us, at least in the beginning of our spiritual walk with God. How many of us have been given an invitation to trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior, while at the same time being told about the suffering we would incur because of that? How many times have we seen a preacher on TV talk about placing our faith in Jesus, but never mentioning the difficulties that come with that? How many of us have been told either directly or indirectly through sermons or books that God's will for us is to be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous? Today we're concluding a section within the book of 1 Peter that describes suffering of these Christians that Peter is writing to. We've been going through 1 Peter verse by verse for 11 weeks now, and for the first three weeks we looked at life in the sun. What does it mean to place our faith in Jesus, and what do we enjoy 
in that relationship. Then we looked at life and society, where we learned about, and Peter told us about how we're model citizens and how we interact with our government, how we interact with our bosses. What does life and society look like within a Christian marriage and a church? And for five weeks, we've looked at Peter's statements and Peter's words about suffering to these people. And today, as we conclude with these seven verses, we're going to learn from Peter that suffering should not be caused by our sin, but something that we trust God in, that we rejoice in, and that we glorify God in. So if you have a Bible in front of you or a sermon outline there, we'll look at the situation these believers are in, the cause of their suffering, or really the cause that should not cause their suffering, and then the response that they have. Ultimately, what Peter is going to tell them is that suffering serves God's purposes that they have, that God has for their lives. So let's read about the situation of these believers that Peter is writing to in verses 12 through 14. Peter writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ... Keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Peter begins this section with that word, beloved, or the New Living Translation that we heard read says, friends. It's a term of endearment that Peter is using to talk to true and authentic Christians. He's not talking to disobedient Christians or phony Christians. And this affectionate address is going to prepare them for an exhortation he gives them. And he describes a picture for us, the picture that they are living in. He says, beloved, and I'm going to skip a few words. And he describes the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing. That's the picture of their lives that they are either in or about to start experiencing as believers. The book of 1 Peter was written in about A.D. 63, and something very important happened in A.D. 64. A fire broke out in the city of Rome, and that fire broke out under the reign of Caesar, emperor of Rome, named Nero, you probably have heard about. Nero served as the emperor of Rome from A.D. 54 to 68. He became the emperor when his mom poisoned his dad so that her son could become the emperor. So we have a little telling about his family that he comes from. Nero was known to be somewhat stable in the early years of his his rulership, but as time goes on, he became more erratic and unstable. And Nero is famous for beginning the first wave of persecution against Christians in the first century. When a fire broke out in Rome on July 8th of AD 64, Nero blamed Christians for the fire. 
Some people say Nero intentionally started the fire because he wanted to rebuild Rome how he wanted, and when the city turned against him, he chose to blame the Christians for the fire. Some people say he, he started the fire knowing all along that he was going to blame Christians for it. And ultimately, that fire in Rome and blaming Christians for that fire in Rome leads to the death of Peter and the Apostle Paul and the persecution persecutions that, that followed that fire in A.D. 64. There was a secular historian that lived at that time named Tacticus, and he wrote a book of history on the first century in Rome. He's regarded as the most accurate among secular scholars of first century Rome history. And in his history of Rome in the first century, Tacticus writes this, he says, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a, class of, on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, he's talking about Jesus Christ, the person here, Christus, from whom the name had its origins, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. And a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out again, not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome. Accordingly, an arrest was made of all who pleaded guilty of following Christus. Then upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of their crime of firing the city, he's referring to that great fire in Rome, as of a hatred against mankind. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. The Christians were covered with the skins of beasts. They were torn by dogs and perished. They were nailed to crosses or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight had expired. Tacitus continues describing Nero and what he did after that fire in Rome. He says, Nero offered his gardens for the spectacle and was exhibiting a show in the circus while he mingled with people in the dress of a charioteer or stood aloft in a car. Even for criminals who deserved extreme and exemplary punishment, there arose a feeling of compassion for the Christians, for it was not as it seemed for the public good of what they endured, but to the glut of one man's cruelty that they were being destroyed. Tacitus is describing how Nero would hold garden parties at his palace and use Christians and their bodies as flames to illuminate his garden for his parties. Those are the persecutions that, that broke out in the city of Rome that Peter is either sensing is coming or maybe he has seen. And now he's writing this letter to the believers in Asia Minor about a thousand miles away, telling them this type of persecution, if it's not already there, it is going to be coming there. And this is how you get ready. So Peter describes that picture for them. Then he describes the posture that they need to have. He says, do not be surprised as though some strange thing were happening to you. Now again, Peter is writing from Rome. 
either before that fire and persecution breaks out or shortly after it. Either way, he knows that, that suffering and persecution is coming to these believers. And he's telling them and he's essentially telling us that they need to prepare their minds for suffering. Not to be surprised that suffering isn't an accident. And that's an important lesson for us, too, that we need to prepare our minds for suffering. And for us living in the USA, we've enjoyed a long hiatus from suffering because of faith in Jesus Christ. We are perhaps the least persecuted nation in the entire world. And that's good because we don't experience the persecution, but it's bad because when we do experience suffering and persecution, it catches us off guard. And it takes us back and it causes us to stumble. But what Peter's trying to tell them is that they need to prepare their minds for suffering. That, that they need to get ready for it mentally. Tom Constable, who has Bible commentaries on every book of the Bible you can access for free. He says, some Christians are surprised when other people misunderstand, dislike, insult, and treat them harshly as they seek to carry out God's will. Peter reminded his readers that this reaction against them is not a strange thing, but a normal Christian experience. Their persecutions were fiery ordeals in the sense that they were part of God's refining process and were uncomfortable. And that type of uncomfortable experience is normal for Christians, according to Peter. It's normal for us to experience that. So as Peter describes this picture for them and their, their posture, he also gives them a practice in verse 13. He says, But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. Now I think there's a subtle hint here that Peter gives of the type of suffering that these believers were experiencing there. In Asia Minor he says to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ now Christ we know suffered unjustly and I think we can make that connection that these Christians are also suffering unjustly as well they haven't done anything wrong to deserve the suffering they're experiencing but Peter gives them a command he says keep on rejoicing you could translate that literally constantly be rejoicing that's what we do in our sufferings. That's what Paul did in his sufferings, right? That, that Paul said he wanted to know Christ and get to know Christ. And he said in chapter 3, verse 10 of Philippians, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And I do that by the fellowship of his sufferings. If we want to get to know Christ better, our practices should be to endure sufferings like Christ did. See, as Peter tells them and he tells us that we should be rejoicing in our sufferings. That we should be overcoming the things we're in by our rejoicing in God. Instead of counting our ministry, we need to count our persecutions. Instead of counting our, our conversions, we need to count our rejections of sharing the gospel. Instead of counting our likes on our church Facebook page, we should count the the negative comments made about our church on Facebook. We should not count the nice deeds we do to other people through our church. We should count the, the complaints they give about us. 
Suffering is a privilege, not a penalty. And that's what Peter is telling them. And there's a story in Acts chapter 5 I hope you're familiar with. You can read it on your own. But basically, Peter and others are sharing the gospel. They get put in prison. They're beaten in prison. And then they get released. And the first thing they do when they get released and they're free and they breathe that fresh air is they say, what an honor and what a privilege we have to suffer like Christ suffered. Suffering, according to Scripture, is a privilege and not a penalty. When someone does something to hurt us, we should consider it an honor that we experience it. And Peter describes our place that we have in suffering in verse 14. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Now that word for reviled, we don't use very often in our language, but it means to be subject to verbal abuse or to use abusive language or a synonym is to scold someone. And you might notice some of the, the terms used in these seven verses. Peter describes the fiery ordeal that they're in in verse 12, their testing in verse 12, their suffering in verse 13, and says they are going to suffer in verses 15, 16, and 19. But there's something good. For the name of Christ, he says, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. He tells them that when they suffer, they are reminded that God is with them, that the Holy Spirit is resting on them. Proof that they have God in them and the Holy Spirit living in them Proof of that is when they endure suffering. J. Vernon McGee has said that the greatest proof that you're a child of God is that you can endure suffering. So that's the situation that they're in that Peter describes in verses 12 through 14. And then in verses 15 and 16, he describes a potential cause of suffering. He writes, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in his name. Now, these two verses I see kind of as the fine print at the bottom of the page for what Peter has just described on suffering. This is the disclaimer, the fine print at the very bottom. He says that there, there are potential sins that lead to suffering in verses 15. Being a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. A murderer and a thief is a very specific sin that someone could be persecuted for. But a, an evildoer or a troublesome meddler is a more general kind of moral sin. But Peter is saying to be, be absent from both of those. To not do either of those. And he gives us a positive response to have in suffering in verse 16. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in his name. Now Peter contrasts two words there in verse 16. Christian and ashamed. Now, Christian is a common term that we use today to describe ourselves, that we are Christians. But it was not a common term in the New Testament or the first century. The word Christian is only used three times in the entire New Testament. 
In Acts 11 and Acts 26, it's used by non-Christians as a derogatory term to describe believers. Believers often, uh, Christians often describe themselves in Scripture as believers, brothers, disciples, saints, or followers of the way. They didn't describe themselves with that term Christian. But it does show up two times in a derogatory way used to describe followers of Jesus in Acts. But here in, in 1 Peter, we see a little subtle irony that, that Peter is using. If you're a Christian, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed for being who people accuse you of being ashamed. Right? Peter is he's the only Christian in the Bible that uses the term Christian to describe us. But in verses 15 and 16, he's really telling us to glorify God in our actions. Don't feel ashamed, but to glorify God. And we're not ashamed when we know that we're doing good as believers. When we know we have a right relationship with God and we're following him obediently. When we know we're not sinning regularly on purpose. When we know we didn't cause or bring suffering on ourselves. Peter essentially is telling them here, two wrongs don't make a right. He's saying, don't let other people's sin lead to your sin that then leads to your own suffering. Don't act like an unbeliever, he's telling them. And that reminds us, we need to be the best Christians that we can be to make sure our suffering we experience isn't something that we inflict upon ourselves. Essentially, we suffer as Christians, not as criminals, as Peter describes the potential cause there in verses 15 and 16. And then he gives this response in verses 17 through 19 that they should have. And he says that God's children will suffer first in verse 17. Peter writes, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. See, God is sending these trials and these sufferings to Christians to purge their faith and to purify their faith and to strengthen them. When it says judgment, that doesn't mean condemnation, but instead it means, according to John MacArthur, the, the purging, the chastening, and the purifying of the church by the loving hand of God. That God's children will suffer, but they will suffer first. And God's children, they will suffer less. If we continue reading in verse 17, if suffering begins with us first, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel, he asks. And in verse 18, if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Now, Peter is making a point of comparison here between those that love God and serve God and those that don't love God and reject God. And that point of comparison he's making here is that if God is going to put a believer that loves him through a little bit of suffering temporarily now while on earth, how much greater is that suffering against someone that rejects him and does not love him going to be eternally, is what Peter is saying here. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. 
If those that love God suffer a little bit right now, how much is God going to make those that don't love God suffer in the future? And when he says, if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, that word difficulty isn't describing the transaction of becoming a Christian. These are already believers, but he's describing the trials and the, the troubles that they're having to endure as believers. So God's children, they'll suffer first. God's children, they're going to suffer less. And then verse 19 is perhaps the most important verse of this paragraph. Peter says God's children will find rest. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. That word therefore is his explanation that he gives of, of how we're supposed to understand verses 17 and 18. It draws these encouragements to a conclusion and gives a command based on them. And he defines the readers here. Those also who suffer according to the will of God. Peter wants his readers to make sure they don't assume that they're outside of God's will just because they're suffering, which is sometimes what we tend to think. I'm going through hard times. God, what did I do wrong? God, I'm having to endure this hard situation where I lost my job, but I didn't do anything wrong. Why? But Peter makes a case in his letter that suffering sometimes is following God's will. He said in chapter 3, verse 17, It is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right than for doing what is wrong. In chapter 4, verse 2, he says, So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. There he's talking about their suffering they experience when they leave the group of people they used to sin with and how those people persecute them and cause them suffering. And the implication is given for us at the end of verse 19. that they should entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. That word for entrust means that we're handing something over to someone else that we trust to keep it in good care and take good care of it. Kind of like we used to do maybe 20 or 30 years ago when we took stuff to the bank and they put it in a safety deposit box and we trusted them. A lot of banks don't offer that anymore, but that was something we used to utilize. That word for entrust here is the same Greek word that Jesus uses on the cross when he says, Father, I entrust my spirit to you. And he gives up his spirit to the Father. And for us, who do we entrust our souls to? Peter calls God here our creator in doing what is right. The one who created us and knows us best is who we trust to take us and walk us through suffering. And that's the lesson for us in verses 17 through 19, that, that we trust God in suffering with our soul. Tim Keller in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, says, when pain and suffering come upon us, we finally see not only that we are not in control of our lives, 
but that we never were, he writes. See, trusting God and suffering is something we might not think about. We sometimes think, well, if I trust my soul to God, then he'll take away my suffering. But in fact, it's kind of flipped. When we place our trust in God, now we, we trust him with our suffering, and we trust him to get us through our suffering. And we do that by talking to him regularly through prayer, by reading his word daily and, and getting to know him better, by spending time with his people in community and allowing them to help us get through suffering. And one of my favorite books, The Bumps Are What You Climb On by Warren Wiersbe. He says, you cannot trust someone who is a stranger to you. You must know Jesus Christ as your own Savior and Lord if you want him to direct you. When you surrender to Christ, then God becomes your Father, and Christ becomes your Shepherd, and the Holy Spirit becomes your Teacher, and together they direct you into the will of God. We trust God in suffering with our soul. And with that, I want to ask you, have you entrusted God with your soul? Have you placed your faith in Jesus and said, I give my life over to you, God, and I trust you? As we've learned from Peter the past five weeks, becoming a follower of Jesus isn't going to make your life better. It's probably going to make it worse. Becoming a follower of Jesus isn't going to prevent suffering from coming in your lives. It's actually going to cause suffering coming into your life. That might not sound like good news, but the good news is this. Your suffering that you might experience will be temporary and less while on earth than the suffering you would experience if it is forever torment in hell forever. And that's the offer that each of us get when we read God's word. And Peter, thankfully, is telling us exactly what we're buying into when we place our faith. In Jesus you know all the details you've seen what it means to live as a Christian let's pray together and I invite you if you've never entrusted your soul to Jesus today is the day you know what it means you know what life will look like let's pray together and if you haven't taken that step I want to invite you to do that Lord thank you for Peter's words that tell us about the the purging that occurs and the suffering and persecution that comes to Christians. That Peter experienced it. He lost his life under the same, the same man that, that Paul was killed by too. And for us, we don't understand those persecutions. We might in the future, but at least we know about the potential. If no one is here that has ever placed your faith in you, I invite you, Lord, that, to convict them of their sin and, and use your Holy Spirit to draw them to you, to place their faith in you and entrust their soul to you forever. It's as simple as saying, God, I know I've messed up. I repent of my past sins. I'm going to give up trying to live on my own terms and control everything. I'm going to hand everything over to you, call you my Lord, look to you and follow you.
even if it means suffering and persecution. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.